Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. This is a bit new for everyday theology, and Chris isn't new. Clearly, Chris has been uh, a multiple-time guest. Uh, he's always a fascinating person to have a conversation with. What's new is having Chris with me more consistently and being a part of our everyday theology team. So, Chris, maybe I shouldn't have said that yet. Maybe this shouldn't have been like the point to throw that out and just like surprise people with our new season. But in this kind of teaser, we're just saying, hey. Thanks for thanks for joining. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I think season three with you is going to be much better than season three without you. Uh, <laughs> we'll put it that way. Much much better. Well, you can always you know, there's always the possibility of season four without me to make up for whatever trouble season Ooh. three turns into. I already don't like the idea, but you know, who knows? Mysterious ways. Right? Um, Mysterious ways. Does Does God know the future and whether you be no? Mm-hmm. I don't wanna, I, we're not going back. We've had a that. conversation about that. I think we've had that conversation. Um, today, though, I think you know. By the time this comes out, it'll be a little bit past tense, but it's never really past tense. In fact, it's something that is always kind of in in conversation in the church to to some degree, some places, right? Um, if not to large places. But what we've been seeing here is this kind of re, uh, re-emergence of the conversation of women in the pastorate and women in leadership, especially in light of what has happened with the Southern Baptist Convention, what's happened at Saddleback, and uh, ordaining pastors at Saddleback, and some of the kind of fallout that's happened. We've seen some professors from Southern Baptist uh, universities kind of implode, go elsewhere. Like it's just been kind of a a strange cultural moment. And so as you and I discussed before we hit record, you know, we wanted to break it down into two areas, right? Like a cultural area and a theological area to kind of give both. And, but I'm just going to start with even asking you your thoughts on why are we at this cultural moment still? It's not even to say, why are we at it brand new or again, but really just still, we've just still been in this cultural moment. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in some ways these issues of injustice and unfairness, especially as it relates to women, I mean, that is as old as civilization itself. I mean, that that's, uh, and it's a part of the church's history, unfortunately, as, as well. And as well as you know, it is also a part of the church's history pressing for the full equality of women. I mean, and, and not just um, recently, right? I mean, this is something 
there right. there are accounts of this. I mean, I think that's what we see in scripture. I think that's what we see in in at times in the ancient and medieval traditions, depending on the angle. Uh, Peter Brown has a book called The Body and Society, in which he talks about early Christian sexual ethic and how in, in many ways it was liberating because it was saying to people who were slaves who had no legal standing in the ancient world, weren't, weren't even, they were non-persons right. in the ancient world, that in Christ they did have personhood and in Christ they were free not to be someone else's sexual object. Right. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's, the church has always only failed on these fronts. I mean, I do think there has been a prophetic voice, a witness for equality and justice from the beginning. And that continues to this day. But I do think there is, you know, in this particular moment in this, in the States, there there's, it's a time of a special upheaval, right? Like that right. we're in, in a sense, there's always an earthquake. This is just <laughs> a, a one that that registers stronger on the scale. Yeah. So I think in some ways, yeah, this is always going on. In other ways, we're in one of those moments where there is a new intensity around the conversation. Yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of that is driven by the rhetoric of the last presidential cycle. Right. Yeah. And and the fact that social media amplifies all of this. I mean, I think those are factors. I don't think they're the only things, but those are factors. Right. I, I think, you know, it's really, it's one of those things, especially with this topic, that I think we've gotten to the point that what you what you said kind of brings to bear this, this thought process of going, we really only pay attention to this conversation anymore when it rears its ugly head in a broken way, but there's so much of it happening in beautiful ways that has now just kind of gone under the radar. It's that we somehow find ourselves surprised that if you're not in those circles, you almost find yourself surprised when that happens again, Mm. right? It's almost like the thought process, like if, if I'm thinking every day about theological issues, I might put, I will, of course, put women in ministry or leadership in the category of like, this is an ongoing issue, but that's almost like, I almost can't keep it in that box because in my circles, of course, women can be in ministry, women can be leadership. It's really not a question anymore. In fact, it's not just prized, but it's being argued for and pushed, right? Like let's, how do we, how do we make it happen? So when it doesn't happen or when it kind of becomes a problem again in these other circles, it's almost like we've forgotten that that's always been that that circle has, has existed. And why am I surprised by it? Other than the fact that I have, I'm just not a part of those circles anymore. And now all of a sudden it's a big issue. Yeah. again. Does that make sense. It does. I mean, I think the most important part of what you're saying, I think is that we lose sight of the work of God, what is beautiful and right and good mm-hmm. in and around us. Right. And then, our kind of our insensitivity to that, I think, is part of what makes it so that we are caught off guard by injustice, right? right. Like, oddly, I th- I think that you might think that if you're if you're especially keen to injustice, you will notice the work of God. But I think it's the other way around. Like, I think if you're especially attentive to 
the good work the spirit is doing in in bringing us to to the unity god wants for us to the integrity god wants for us then you notice the injustice right, right. and you notice even the small injustices right and so i think it's i think that's where we are i mean you know that old preacher's illustration about when they're teaching tellers at a bank to notice false bills they don't they don't show them all of the possible you know fakes they just show them the authentic money right and and to know how that feels and smells and looks and then whatever the fake is they'll notice it because it doesn't feel right it doesn't look right. right right i think something like that is true about issues of justice when we see god bringing justice about in the world that's where our attention should be and we should we should have a feel for that we should know what that smells like and looks like and then we will notice when that's not happening Right. So I, I think our preaching, our pastoral care, our spiritual direction, our conversations, our studies should be teaching us that. Look at how God worked here to bring about this kind of unity and integration and integrity and then and then celebrate. Yeah. And more and more we will get a feel for, okay, where is that not happening? I go back to that, like Paul Tillich illustration of you know, what he would say reformed and always reforming, trying to find that balance, but to put it in a different perspective, where he would say with one hand, we're creating clarity and the other hand, we're creating ambiguity. What happens, I think, especially with an issue like this, is there's a lot of a lot of people who are, I am hesitant to use the word called, but just really prone to looking at the positives of the church, right? And I think sometimes that can be a bit overwhelming when you're just in those circles, right? Everything's okay, you know, almost to the point where there's the hiding of the brokenness. Yeah. And then you've got the other extreme where, and and sometimes weird Christian Twitter is this way, right? Everything's broken, absolutely everything. My problem actually isn't that both those things exist. My problem, I think more than anything, is that they just aren't in conversation and we don't Mm. prioritize them both as equally. You're either in the one camp or the other, mm. rather than recognizing that both hands in this process of reforma- reformation or the prophethood of all believers are equally important. Yeah, those praising the good things that have happened and yeah. those who are calling out the broken things. It's just that we often, maybe in that same political vein, we just kind of put them in their own categories and go, well, you go over here and you go over here and we won't have conversations. You can do your mm. own thing. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, one of the ways that I, I you I think you can illustrate this, and I, I've shared this with you before. I think about it a lot. Years ago, when the emerging church phenomenon was happening, I was at an event, and they were you know, there was a conversation about postmodernism and deconstruction. You know, this is twenty years ago, something like that. And someone in the audience stood. I have no idea who it was. Someone in the audience stood up during the Q and A and said something to this effect: "Like this, the spirituality that you're talking about." which I think was in many ways a precursor to ex-evangelicalism. I mean, I think that that's essentially what it was, like a, yeah. a, a movement that would become ex-evangelicalism. He said, it feels like this spirituality is all Lent and never Easter. Mm. And, and I think I think it's possible for spiritualities to kind of get fixated in a season, right? To be Pentecostal, but not not to have anything to do with Good Friday or or Advent or to be Lenten. And it's all about, yeah, brokenness and loss and darkness 
and you you have no sense of the light of God or or the and so on. So I, I think that's possible. And I, I will say though, of course, and I know this is not what you're calling for. It's not as simple as trying to find some kind of balance of right. a little bit of criticism and a little bit of praise. We're we're just trying to tell the truth. And I think if we are telling the truth, and if we're committed to telling the truth, then we will be noticing. God is bringing about good in our lives, and we can name that and, and praise God for it. You know, tribute God for that for that goodness. But we'll also notice what is un, unfaithful and what is what's gone sideways, and and we will name that. So I, I think it's it's not about some kind of arbitrary both sidesing. Obviously, it's about trying to tell the truth as best we can, which means that at times one of those voices might have the ascendancy, right? So if, if, you know, if I'm in a, if I'm in a particular setting and there's a, a, a breakout of reconciliation and forgiveness and making right wrongs and restitution, then that might be a season in which I'm still noticing that, that some things are broken and it's not quite whole in every way, but I'm rejoicing in the good that I'm seeing. Yeah. And then vice versa. There might be a season where, you know, mostly what I'm experiencing is, is it's Linton, right? It's, it's loss and, and suffering. So I think, I think it's just about being committed to telling the truth and, and not giving into the pressure to tell half the story for one reason or another. As, as Christians, we love this verse, right? The truth will set you free until it comes to the time where we have to tell the truth. We're like, well, maybe not. Maybe I, I would rather kind of keep that, right? Or, or I don't want to see the good that's happening over there, or I don't want to see the ways in which there's been been issues. And 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 I'm thinking, and I want to get back to the the topic at hand, really, of kind of women and leadership. Yeah. And around the same time, I'm going to re re release our. Uh, my conversation with Carolyn Custis James talking about biblical patriarchy and yeah, good, how that good. needs to be deconstructed and everything. Mm. But, um, you know, it partially, it, it kind of reminds me of an interview I recently saw of a pastor on one of those Today shows, right, uh, of a very large church talking about recent scandals. And, and it was so hard. You could tell in the conversation, in the questions, it was so hard for there to be truth telling. Yeah, yeah. It was constantly like, "How do I?" It is it was almost political spin, right? It was like, "How it do was. I?" That, say that, I would say not just almost. I would bet you. There it is. It's it's brand protection. Right, right. It, how do we how do we keep the brand from being damaged? And and it seems like that's the. I think I love that idea, right? Like that's the key with any of these, right? Like any of these conversations seem more about brand than they do about theological, biblical, which I hate using that word because what is biblical when we say that, right? It can be a, a variant yeah. of things, but it's, it's, it's rather than truth telling, it's protecting without lying, right? Like it's yeah. protecting without telling the actual truth. Well, I'm not sure it's always without lying, but yes, I mean, even- I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt here, right? I'm trying to say, look, the there's charitable, something- Right, right, absolutely. The charitable read is it's it's a, you know, a white lie or it's, you know, a kind of gray truth, right? It's protecting the church, right? It's never, we won't couch it in protecting the brand because we- oh, Of course, it, yeah, of course. a bit too worldly at that point to use that word, although I think some churches are free and they feel free to use that word, but it's protecting God's work. Yeah. As if 
that's our job. And I think with maybe the Southern Baptist, like protecting the church is, well, women can't be in that space mm-hmm. and we're protecting the church when really well, it's, we're protecting yeah. our positions of power. We're protecting our, our quote unquote doctrine that is, is truth, which is their own theological positioning, right? Like it, it really is the wrong protection. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. I mean, I saw, um, man, was a couple of days ago, maybe as much as a week ago, a post from a kind of leading SBC voice talking about, you know, the recent, the, the Jesus and John Wayne book, the making a biblical womanhood book, and just kind of the conversation around Beth Moore, just kind of naming all of that. And the, the entire argument, it was an article, the entire argument was that's not who we are as Southern Baptists. And I, I do think there is a way in which yeah. That, that's the that's just another version of the brand conversation, right? right. Like, so when right. we think brand, we're usually thinking of kind of independent, charismatic, megachurch models. But that's it's, it can also be denominational and, right. and ideological, right? So some of that, like, so when you think of something like, I want to be careful naming anyone, but I mean, if you think of like a Hillsong brand, that's not so much a, a set of beliefs as it is a kind of yeah uh, cultural okay. feel, right? right. Right. But in the SBC that this article was defending, that is a kind of ideological set of commitments. Right. I don't even think I don't think beliefs is the right word for it. I mean, I think it is their their ideological commitments. And they're not wrong. These defenders are not wrong to say that this can be lost. Right. That this thing we believe this brand can can be destroyed. I think what's what the question, though, is is. Is that something God cares about or not, right? Your your brand or your yeah. ideology or mine, right? I mean, I think, and it's once you're inside those positions, I mean, this is, you know, Jacques Ellul, William Stringfellow, lots of people have done good work on this. Like once you're on the inside of an institution, even though you would admit this is not the whole church, I, mean, I don't think anyone in the, in the Southern Baptist Convention or anyone in the Assemblies of God or anyone even in the Roman Catholic Church would say, much less, you know, Hillsong churches. I don't think any of them would say, you know, we are the whole of the church or the whole of the kingdom. But when you're in a leadership position on the inside of those institutions, it's hard not to think about the survival of your institution at all costs. Right, right. And the survival of your institution as you understand it at all costs, Mm. right? Yeah. And I, I still think I mentioned him a moment ago. I still think William Stringfellow is exactly right. Like the moment you are committed to your institution's future, no matter what, you, you, you're lost. Right. The moment you're willing to say, I'm committed to this, no matter what. If that if, if this is anything other than God and neighbor, then you're lost. Right. You're in idolatry. Right. right? The only thing you can say, I'm committed to God and neighbor no matter what good great right. anything else bad right i mean anything right, else right. you're 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 lost which which is i, I hate I, mean, I feel like this is a kitschy analogy but whatever sometimes they work right it's yeah. that kind of analogy of what cancer is in, in the body of these cells that don't die refuse to die causing havoc on everything else when really the issue is sometimes 
as seen in the life of Jesus, there is a cycle of death and resurrection. There's a cycle of things that need to die. And that can even be our institutions. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. It needs to be. It needs to be our institutions. I, there's there's few, and this is not the conversation we were going to have, but it just kind of brings to mind, especially in my new space that I'm finding myself, in conversation with a denomination that I haven't had before, a specific denomination that is specifically anti-credal, but really what they mean by that is anti-committed to doctrine uh, for eternity, right? Like it's the, the, there is a sense in which there is a continual renewal of the doctrine of the church. Um, I don't even know if they would use that language. It's still new in my conversations. But um, because of every new generation needing to go back to the text themselves and recognizing what is going on and being able to form this anew, right? Um, which has led to some cool conversations. But that's not every church. And I, and I hate to say like, well, that church is doing it right and everyone else is doing it wrong because – Clearly, there's problems everywhere, right? We can get back to that weird, twi- weird uh, Christian Twitter camp and say everything's got problems. But um, there is a sense in which we've failed to let institutions die that need to die. Yeah, we failed to 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 let that truth come out and air the the skeletons in our denominational or church structure closets that need to be aired out and mm-hmm. say look, we're, we're doing this again. We're doing it anew. And mm. this clearly this way had some issues. Let's try something else. Right. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's right. I mean, I, one, one way, and this is too simple, but just for the sake of conversation, I mean, I think one way of thinking about the American evangelical experiment, and it is an experiment. I mean, in terms of the, the scope of Christian history, most of what American evangelicalism, evangelicalism is, is a reinvention. Right. So when when uh, and, and I think this is a really important point to make. So like when the quote unquote conservatives in that conversation argue uh, th- that it's a conservative position to be against women's ordination and they appeal to the Roman Catholic or the Orthodox tradition, that's disingenuous. Right. Because they're not actually a part of those traditions. No. They're 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 defined by their reaction against them. And I don't just mean that they're Protestants. I oh. mean, they're they're biblicist Protestants. Because those evangelicals are the ones that would point at those traditions and often say, well, there's some Christians in that denomination. But yeah. Just because you're there doesn't mean, you know. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about fundamentalist Baptists. I mean, I am right. talking about that community, too. But but just broadly what we think of as conservative evangelicalism is really not conservative in any meaningful sense, right? I mean, it is conservative politically, typically, in that it it tends to align, at least among white evangelicals, it tends to align with Republican politics in the states. But theologically, they're not conservative. Culturally, they're not conservative. <laughs> and so it's, it, it is, and I'm not calling anyone a liar, but when no, people right. in those circles appeal to, well, the church has always done it this way. It shows you that they don't understand their own tradition right. well, right? right? Much less the, the church's tradition well. And I think that that's part of our problem, right? But I, I, I think that when you look at that larger experiment of American evangelicalism, I think 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 300 years from now, when Christians look back on it, one of the things they will observe is that we changed things we shouldn't have changed, and we didn't change things we should have changed, right? So we, 
are one of the examples of that is we've been overly committed to particular ideas that are are new hmm. and called them like inviolable like we cannot change these right they around women's ordination even though we've changed all of the framework that makes the discernment process for something like that possible so i i think that you know, personally, just in terms of where I am, I think there are are things that we should be slow to change. You know, the the canon of scripture, the the, the creedal tradition, yeah, Christ as Christ defined as fully human and fully divine, and God as Trinity. The, I mean, I think these are things that we use, right? What's that? Like the essentials that we often talk about, but right, the very short list of essentials. But what's sneaky is people sneak in things that are non-essential into the essentials list. And I think that what's defined, broadly speaking, what's defined American evangelicalism is that we actually don't care that much about the essentials. We shift to something else. So, for instance, I think to go not to pick on, you know, the Southern Baptist communities right now, but you think of someone like Wayne Grudem, who's teaching an absolute doctrinal heresy, right? That, that subordinationism in God, right? That right. there is an eternal subordination in God. Yeah. The son is less than the father from all eternity. I mean, that is absolutely a denial of <laughs> right. the fundamental commitment of the Christian tradition, right? He's altering who God is as understood by Christians. But in most of those circles, that's not troubling because he remains conservative politically and and so on down the line right he he's he fits in other ways and so that challenge of that essential commitment shows you that that's not actually essential right right what's essential is what we believe about the ordination of women or what we believe about the doctrine of inerrancy or or you know some other thing that actually is not essential right? right in any in any meaningful sense so yeah. i think part of that's part of our trouble right now is that we've we've kind of switched the, you know, that what is essential and what is not. We've we've played a game in which there's been a, a kind of card trick and in which the things that are actually essential on the ground in our churches is stuff that's peculiar to our tradition that just doesn't matter to other Christians of other times and places in the same way. Right. But we're acting as if that's what holds Christianity together, right? And I think Pentecostals are right at the, the head of the problem. Oh, yeah. And I mean, We're so I'm not are. singling out the Baptists for, for critique. I mean, it's just that's what's in the news right now. Right. No, I, I think I think that's really helpful, you know, and, and colloquially, we always just say like the essentials, non-essentials and what buckets, right? And so on and so forth. But I think it really is important to recognize how over-realized or over-packed our essential list is. And how nearly all of it is really not essential. And we've focused on these outworkings, right, of our frameworks as the most essential things. I think that's really helpful and something that, you know, maybe we'll have a whole conversation on that at some point because I don't want to lose sight of like the. Yeah, yeah, no, no, me too. But like almost like how do we come to the essentials, right, especially in light of church history? And this is the problem that a lot of people have is that they don't look at church history to recognize the the conversation of the essentials was the first five centuries 
four, four to five centuries of church history, right? Like that's all they were really concerned about. I mean, it's not all, but for a big portion, the things that we learn from that, if you go to theological school at all, that's what you learn from that time period, right? Is the formation of essentials. And it always is this very short list, right? This very kind of short list of things. Um, but the question really is, and and I'll throw it, I mean, I've got thoughts, but I'll throw it to you first. What is the, beyond that, I mean, clearly it's, there's been a bucket of taking women in ministry as this theological chimera of a thing and throwing it into the essentials list um, as, as women can't be, and that's essential, protecting this whole. Whereas for, you know, this is probably us, we would say, well, it's essential in a different way to say women are in ministry. It's not in that essential list thing that we talked about, but it definitely is an outworking from the essentials to say that women must be and should be in ministry and leadership. But what is the theological problem that we're still butting up against in our different circles from your perspective that's causing this? I mean, again, Carolyn Custis James, listen to that podcast. It'll be re-released. She talks about it from a very biblical uh, kind of thought process, Genesis and onward. Um, But theologically, what are we still dealing with in this issue? Yeah. let Let me try to name different aspects of this and then cut to that what I think is the heart of the issue theologically. I think one thing that needs to be said here and a lot more needs to be said, but just as a way of gesturing toward how complex this actually is on the ground, like in real communities, in real in the relationships people actually have, it's possible for quote unquote complementarian relationships to be relatively healthy Mm-hmm. And for quote unquote egalitarian relationships to be relatively toxic, right? right. So I, I I don't want to leave the impression that if you get the ideas right here, and I, and just to be clear, I think that the church should be committed to the full equality of women, right. without reservation, and yeah, the full or, ordination of women, right? I, I want to make that very clear for both of us at the yeah, same. Yeah, sure. That's a hundred percent, right? That's where we're coming from, right? That that's our that's our argument. That being said. I don't think, I mean, I think it's entirely possible to be the kind of person who speaks out against patriarchy, affirms the full equality of women, and then in practice mistreats women or and or fails to actually carry through on those commitments, you know, doesn't actually make room for women to minister and so on and so on. So, like, I want to acknowledge that and vice versa. I've also seen people who they talk like complementarians, but their lives don't look like that actually. Right. Right. So I, I think there's a lot of complexity in terms of once you get out into the real world, you know, th- this is, it's not as easy to sort out as it may seem in a classroom discussion. Right. I think the ideas matter, right? I think the ideas matter. And I'm very much on the side of unqualified, unqualified, full equality of women and, and of course, everyone in the conversation right now would say they are too, but then go on to make an argument. And this is to anticipate the point I want to make about nature in a moment, but go on to argue that full equality does not mean loss of distinction. And they want to uphold that, that, that essential distinction between male and female and then match them to societal and ministerial roles. Right. Accordingly. Well, and, and isn't it, isn't it the power of anecdote, right? 
in the sense of when kind of your, yes, there are complementarian relationships that are very healthy and egalitarian relationships that are really toxic to that so many point to those, their, the anecdotal experiences in their lives to yeah. say which one is correct, right? Right. To say, look, we see, and and often I think we, we see a lot of women who are in very subordinationist type complementarian relationships who go, this is the best life I can ever have and yeah. truly mean it, not lying, not, and, yeah. and wanting to say, this is how this works for every person and how, how you can have your best life because it's mine. Yeah. Now, right. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, there is a kind of tyranny of the anecdote, if, if you want to put it like that, where, we we argue only from our own experiences right. right which is is not a not a good way to have a conversation it's certainly not a way to to discern theologically that would be the relativism that the church was so afraid of right like well, supposedly so afraid supposedly, of <laughs> supposedly right the ones right. they argued so much against even when i was in undergrad like how that was the devil itself and yet it employs it as if as if it doesn't, even, as it doesn't recognize that it employs it. But again, yeah. another conversation. We should have one on that too. Look, we're just kind of, you know, be right. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, but the reason it's generating all of these other possible conversations is because we're right at kind of we're right at the heart of kind of how discernment is made, how mm. how judgments are made about right and wrong. And I, I do think there are a lot of people who without realizing it, some of them do realize it, but a lot of people who don't realize that they are protecting their institution, protecting their brand and, and don't know that they've been caught up in that. I think there are a lot of people who are in good faith, just not sure how to move forward. Like, because they've been given a way of thinking that that sets them up to think, you know, so you were just talking a moment ago about people who kind of they have a good experience of X, therefore they think X is true. Right. But I know a lot of people too who I think in good faith say, Yes, I have a bad experience of X, but I'm still convinced that X is true. So I must right. stay committed to it. Right. So I mean human beings are capable of all kind we live with dissonance all the time, right? right. So I, I don't think often a rallying cry in these circles against the ordination of women is a, is a argument that we need to believe in the objective truth. It doesn't matter what our experience is. Right. And the objective truth turns out to be, I mean, that's always what they understand scripture to be saying. And I do think that people in good faith can be in that place where they think, you know, my experience is that this kind of complementary and patriarchal culture is toxic. My experience is I see women in ministry and other traditions and it seems healthy. I see women in egalitarian marriages and it seems healthy, but I'm committed to believing the Bible and the Bible says X, right? I mean, I think there are lots of pe people in that good faith position. And, and that's part of the problem with biblicism is that it, it, right. it's, it claims to be about the authority of scripture when really it's about the, the authority of a particular reading of scripture. Right. Right. A particular way of handling the text. And the big issue of, of claiming that objectivity, claiming objective truth really means I have it. And it's, and then we use biblicism. We use proofs, right? We use like, we'll look at the Bible here and I'll show you that I have it, which yeah. then becomes an inarguable fact. If it yeah. is objective truth, we just, we just can't talk about it. 
That's right. No That's right. And, and it's essentially we as Protestants here, I'm talking like we've got the problem of we all have to be our own magisterium. We all have to make judgments of absolute truth for ourselves and and or get some other people to agree to do that with us. And so you end up with these kind of ideological camps who are essentially doing that work. What they're telling you is these are the unquestionable things. You cannot question them. Right. right? And I understand like psychologically, socially, why people would be drawn to that. But theologically, of course, there's no way to defend it. Right. Like there, there's no, that, that is not good in the long run. And it it is self-defeating in the long run. So it's, it's a, I mean, I'm not claiming to have the solved all of this. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean it in any, like, I, mean, I have I the that's answers. what we were doing here. I thought we were solving all the right, problems in an hour, right? <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. Ah, well, but I, I think next time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tune in next time for, by the end of season three, we will have, we'll have solved it. That's, that's why there's not going to be a season four without you, because why? I mean, we've just, <laughs> we, we will have settled everything. Three, it's all discussed. Oh my gosh. That's so good. So uh, one of the denominations I work with, they had a motto for a while called uh, finishing the Great Commission. And I, I love to joke about it. Like, what's going to happen the day? Like, let's say we did that. We <laughs> finished the Great Commission. What do you do the next day? Right? Well, that's the Pentecostal thing. That's when Jesus comes back, right? That's when oh, it's all done afterwards, right? <laughs> there you go. Good. Yeah. Last soul one. Here shows Jesus <laughs> on the horizon. That, that, that's amazing. No, I mean, I think... You know, I, I want to keep kind of acknowledging this is endlessly complex, right? And and we don't have all the answers to it. That said, I think theologically what's going on, what's at stake is what you think the relationship is between nature and grace, between what we are and, and are created to be and what God is doing in us, right? and between nature and personhood. What does it mean for me to be a human being? And what does it mean for me to be me? as a human being. Right. So to put it just as straightforwardly as I can, I think that, and this, this is way too simple and we would have to complexify it. If that's a word, complicate it lots of, lots of times to come closer, closer to the truth. But in general, I think those Protestants who are arguing against the ordination of women are doing so because they think that, there's some definition of nature, a woman's nature and a man's nature that has to be kept at all costs. Right. So they've not only made that commitment essential to their identity as a movement, they've also essentialized the nature of man and the nature of woman, maleness and femaleness, masculinity and femininity, and insisted that that's God's creatorial design. And no person's personality can exceed what their nature is supposed to be. Right. And, and that goes deeper than just gender norms, right? Like that's oh, yeah. actually the being as male, by yeah. which then the gender norms can be the expression of, and that has to be that expression, right? Yep. It's And that's why we can't even have that conversation well in the church nope. in terms of gender norms, because we're going back to nature, right? And this kind yeah, of thing. Absolutely. And, and it will, you see this. I mean, one way of kind of getting a feel for that is to listen to what people in those churches say around marital advice, 
mm. about what marriage is. And, and if they talk in essentialist ways about men are like this, women are like that, it, it, it tells you that they have a commitment to nature as what tells us what's possible for personhood. Right. Right. So essentially, they're in the nature person relationship. And I'm getting that language, by the way, for those who haven't already made the connection from the way the church talks dogmatically about Jesus. Like, so at the Chalcedonian definition, we get Jesus is one person, God, the son, one person subsisting in two natures, human and divine, fully human, fully divine, one person, two natures. Right. And so that language of person and nature, of course, shows up in Trinitarian dogma as well, where we talk about God as three persons one nature, right? right? That there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So an unchanging nature and and three persons subsisting in that one nature. So that person-nature language, it's rooted in our doctrine of God and our doctrine of Christ. So when we bring that to human being, just as can happen in Trinitarian dogma, just as can happen in Christological dogma, you can end up, if you're not careful, kind of playing nature and person off against each other. Right. And which you say nature has to be this. Therefore, person has to fit what this nature is. And, and that's that's one way of understanding. Brad Jerzak is really helpful on this point. All the Christological heresies really, Brad argues, comes down to people saying, well, we know what human nature and divine nature are. Hmm. So we therefore know what God as person must be. Right. So like they're starting with definitions of nature. The divine nature is this. The human nature is that. Therefore, Jesus has to be a creature because there's no way for the divine nature to be fully joined to the human nature and so on down the line. Right. So whether we're talking about Arianism or, or others of the Christological heresies, Brad says that really that's a conversation about what we think is possible for the person of God based on what we think we know about nature. You, right. you see the same thing in sacramental theology, right? So when we talk about the body and blood of Christ and the bread and the wine of the Eucharist, it's a conversation about grace and nature, the nature of the bread and wine, the nature of a body. So Calvin famously argues that there has to be real presence at the table. Otherwise, Christ is a liar. He promises that he's there. But he says, we know what the nature of a body is, and a body has a place. Right. So he, it can't be on my table the way the bread is on my table. So what Calvin argues is that we are taken up by the Holy Spirit into heaven where his body is. Right. right? So that whole argument is about the nature of body. Yeah. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I want to, I want to circle back because there is a big thing that you said that I want to make sure that we can kind of. T- t- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that idea of nature and to put this term to it, which we've already discussed. So I'm stealing your thunder and sorry, but the determination of personhood because of nature. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that word yeah. is really important. Determination, right? Yep. You must be this way because you are male. Absolutely. Or you must be this way because you are female, nope. as if there's now no choice, as if there is now no complexity to the issue. It's just you are female, therefore you are this. Yep. And I want you to kind of go down that. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> especially to this conversation of ministry and leadership. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the places where the church's history is especially troubled in that so much Christian theology 
I mean, as it emerges in the ancient world, it's already committed to the idea that women are naturally inferior to men. Like it, everyone just assumes that. No, and no one thinks, I won't say no one, but almost no one thinks to question it. In fact, I think one of the revolutionary parts of our scripture is that Paul does seem to actually question that. Right. Which is astounding that he would, right? When he when he says things like, you know, the woman's body is not her own, it belongs to her husband's, everybody would have said that. But when he says, but the husband's body is not his own, it belongs to his wife's. I mean, that's astounding. There's a, it's, there's a kind of equality there. And then, of course, the line about in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, no male and female. So he doesn't say neither male nor female. He says in Christ, there is no male and female, meaning that that pairing, as traditionally understood, has been altered somehow or, or has been shown to have been altered by by Jesus. So I, I think there's some incredibly revolutionary claims in, in our scripture. That All that said, in general, people just assumed that women are naturally inferior. Mm-hmm. And arguments proceeded on that assumption. Now, now, of course, those who are arguing against the ordination of women, most of them are going to say, no, 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 no. Of course, women are fully equal. <laughs> right. But right. there is an equal difference. There's, there's a kind of a difference, difference in equality. Right? Yeah. And that has to be it's protected different. at all costs. Right. right. And I, I think we have to be so slow to do that. And if we read our scripture well, we would know that because that's when you start to essentialize a nature, whether it's male or female, or it is Jew or Gentile or slave and free, you often miss that God is always working outside the boundaries of those definitions, right? So the we, we wouldn't challenge or question that God calls Israel to this unique vocation. But of course, God's work is not somehow confined to the right. parameters of Israel, right. right? And Israel will be the first nation to bear witness to that fact, right? The Israel scriptures are filled with the witness that this is the God, you know, as Solomon says, when he dedicates the temple, you know, the heaven of heavens cannot contain you much less this space, right? Like we, we, we don't own you, right? This is Israel's constantly bearing witness to the fact that God is the God of the nations, not just the God of Israel. But we we take that view often in church because we have a singular story. I mean, mm. big story with lots mm. of little stories, right? But it's always the story of the people of Israel. And so we just exclude everyone else. Well, and, and, that, and that's weirdly, that's a case where, and there's this fundamental contradiction in American evangelicalism that is pro-Israel in some ways and anti-Semitic in others at the same time, right? So, like, I grew up around people who were very much pro-Israeli state, but were often prejudiced toward Jews they actually knew, would make, you know, anti-Semitic jokes or whatever, and certainly had biases and prejudices about them. And then they considered the Old Testament to be some kind of lesser scripture. And so, like, there are all kinds of ways in which these contradictions live in us. I think, weirdly, the kind of American, you know, we are the new Israel understanding is a complete betrayal of what Israel has said of itself, right? If you go and read Israel's scriptures well, if you read Genesis, if you read Psalms, if you read Kings, 
you realize th- this, these are not the stories of a people who think of themselves as superior to everyone else. Right. I mean, all of their stories are stories about failure and corruption and brokenness and betrayal. And so it, at least sucked it up a little bit. Absolutely. And yeah. it's a, there's a, there's a kind of irony to everything you see in the Psalms, everything you see in Israel scriptures at large, a kind of ironic awareness that, God called us precisely because we're so bad at this, right? I mean, we, we, we are single. So like when Paul in Corinthians says, you know, not many of you are wise, not many of you are strong, that you've been chosen because God chooses the foolish things of the world. He's drawing on Israel's self-understanding. That's exactly how Israel yeah, yeah. understands what it means to be the people of God. God, you know, one of the ways I've said this in preaching before to be funny is to say, as a parent, I keep my most troublesome child closest, <laughs> right? Like, in a, you know, if we're going out to a restaurant and there's, a, you know, when my kids were younger, they're getting older now, but when they were young kids, you know, the kid that's the most rambunctious and troublesome is the one you got to got to keep right beside you. Right? right. That's why God calls Israel. That's why God calls us. We're the troublesome children, not right. the, the people out there. But there's a way in which we have largely appropriated that story and turned it into some sense of superiority. Right. That mm-hmm. we've we've us and them the story. Our and then we assume that we are superior to the to them. Right. Our foolishness and, is such superiority they can't stand it. Right. Exactly. Not the other way around. <laughs> right. That's right. Exactly. Right. And it's it's a betrayal of, of course, God, but it's also a betrayal of the scriptures and the witness of the people of God. So I think all that say to come back to the question about the ordination of women. We need to start asking ourselves whether or not our understanding of nature is, in fact, faithful. And secondly, even if our understanding of nature is generally faithful, are we practicing it in ways that allow for God's work outside the boundaries of what we think of as normal? So, you know, it's a kind of case like um, I, I think it's clear that Abraham is the chosen one. But then Melchizedek shows up in Abraham's life. And what does Abraham do? He honors him, right? So there's this way in which there might be, I I don't think there would be anything wrong with the church saying, in general, this is what God has made men and women to be. But God is not the mercy of nature as we understand it, right? Right. Grace abounds and persons exceed their nature. And I, I think Rowan Williams has a really excellent piece. He's really working uh, Vladimir Lasky's understanding of personhood, but but Williams summarizing Lasky's position, he says, the, the person, the human person cannot be reduced to human nature. So I am more than just another instance of a human male. Right. There's something about me that exceeds my maleness. And it doesn't contradict my maleness necessarily, but it exceeds it, right? And so in some ways, a simple kind of off the cuff way of talking about that is to say that I have feminine aspects to my being, even though I'm a male and that I'm created to have that. Right. That I, and you see this like with Paul, where he talks about being a nursing mother or being a mother who's in right. the pains of labor. And of course you see this also with God I mean, scripture often speaks of God in those ways, both masculine and feminine ways, or God is a brooding hen as as well as a roaring lion. So there, there are all kinds of ways. And of course, dogmatically, we're committed to God is neither male nor female, neither masculine nor right. feminine, and therefore can be described 
in, in analogous ways as either masculine or feminine. And, and so as human beings, I think there's complexity to our nature, but our personhood exceeds that nature in some way. Yeah. And any kind of ministry that just is too dogmatic or too rigid about what it understands nature to be, it will end up, it will end up forcing persons back into that box under boxed understanding of nature in ways that violate their personhood. Yeah. Right. And that's, I think that's where the real trouble is. I think, I think, you know, if we take this to some theological logical, not even ends, but just down the trajectory of that, it's easy to see where certain denominations may look at things like determinism in terms of the person, right? And I'm pairing this kind of with some thoughts from science and the idea that, you know, our brain functions differently based on how we've eaten, where we're thinking, where sometimes, you know, this term hangry, right? As if, mm-hmm. as if like hangry is a, a term in itself, but that, you know, if I haven't eaten enough, the frontal cortex, frontal lobe starts to shut down. I'm I'm not as in control of my emotions as I've been, and therefore I lash out. As if I mean that's a deterministic language, right? As if like that's just what I have to do because of this biological processing. Mm-hmm. But we almost do the same thing in this theological way with sin and yeah. with and with who's saved or who's not, because mm-hmm. we just have to be boiled down to what is our nature. And that's a bit more of a broader category than just male or female, right? Yeah. But yeah, we're just fitting male and female into that larger pattern of making judgments based on nature. Yeah. But to say what you're saying, that personhood is more than nature, yeah. now gives us space to go, well, just because my frontal lobe is starting to kind of conserve energy and I'm getting angry, doesn't mean that's who I have to be. Yeah. Right. That's right. Or that's who I shouldn't be, or I need to recognize it's, you know, to throw in something else kind of culturally relevant. It's like the Enneagram, Mm. right? Well, I am an eight. I've boiled myself down into this thing. And so now, therefore, I'm allowed to steamroll. I'm allowed to be brash. I'm allowed to take control of a situation rather than going this that is inclined in me in my nature, but that's not me and my person. Yeah, that's right. I I think this is the key. And I think there's there's. I mean, gosh, years and years and years of work to unpack here. But I think that part of what we have to do is is understand we don't want to play person off against nature as if there isn't anything. Right. I mean, there are limits. I mean, there are things that are about human existence. There are there's a givenness to it. Right. So one of the voices around this recent dust up in the Southern Baptists churches said something that I think cuts right to the point. He said, when we say women should not be ordained, some people think we're saying something like women should not be CEOs, but that's not what we're doing. When we say women should not be pastors or should not be ordained, what we mean is women cannot in the same way that men cannot give Mm. birth to babies. Right. Well, okay. First of all, clearly that's a statement about nature. It's telling you that, we are committed above all to a certain understanding of male and female nature. But that, I mean, like the whole council and biblical manhood and womanhood. I mean, that's what it's about. It's about here's a definition of nature. We are committed to at all costs. The problem is it's biologically true that men cannot 
give birth to babies. Right, right. But women have been ordained and have been ordained in evangelical churches mostly. I mean, that's that's another way in which it's it's disingenuous for people to say the conservative position is not to ordain women because evangelicals are the most likely, historically speaking, they're the most likely to ordain women. So yeah. that's, you know, another case of bad history, right? Ter- but, terrible, logical, you know, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I just lost the term, uh, but false equivalency, right? It's taking yeah. clearly two different things, but just saying, well, this equals this. The yeah. hard part is I think a lot of people who hear that argument don't recognize these are two different things. Absolutely. Yeah. And so because someone trusted someone, a pastor, someone in, you know, the SBC who is, you know, given the platform to say this kind of stuff can say, well, these two things are equivalent in this false, which is a false equivalency. Most people can't recognize this is a false equivalency. Oh, absolutely. And, and it's not just a failure of reason, although it is a failure of reason. It's because all of these beliefs fit within a kind of tapestry of other beliefs that touch our fears and our ambitions, right? So when someone is standing up, speaking against the ordination of women, we're also picking up on other clues about their politics. Mm-hmm. We're picking up on other clues about their understanding of economics, about the good life, about, I mean, there are a thousand things at play. And some of it is as simple as, you know, this is the pastor up here saying this about women in ministry. And I don't really agree with that, but the pastor is married to my sister and I'm in the same church with my sister and that's my brother-in-law and what can I do? Right. I mean, so our lives can get entangled in ways that mean that when we, when we talk about these single issue beliefs and wonder why people stay committed to them, it's rarely because they've thought it through, right? I mean, this is, this is just, uh, right. I mean, people yeah. don't believe what they believe very often because they've thought about it. They right. believe what they believe because it fits into this larger pattern of their lives that makes sense. And, and, and they don't see alternatives. Right. I mean, that's right. overwhelmingly, that's the situation. And like people don't work. actually see any other alternative. And it's comfortable, right? Like yeah. this is just the way it's been. Absolutely. And even if it's not comfortable, it's more comfortable than stepping out into nothingness. Right. You know, like it's even if you find it you know, troublesome, what are really where do you turn? And and then once you start to turn, how do you make judgments about it? I mean, that's that's part of the problem here is that we now live in a world in which there really are alternatives at every turn. Social media, you know, Internet, 24-7 cable, you know, meeting new new friends through school or whatever. And so. As our as our culture diversifies and as our technology kind of leads us into communicating with one another more than we should, more than we're actually capable of, that means that if I'm upset by something, I really can start to look for alternatives. But now I'm in the position of how do I make a judgment about what is right? What is right? And this is one of the reasons that in evangelical circles, so so people, men and women who were raised in evangelical churches and then leave. Once they leave, they're still making judgments based on the way they were framed to make judgments in those communities. So they're still thinking like evangelicals, even though they're mostly so like the kind of binary thinking, either or they end up taking that same as a rule. They end up taking that same binary thinking out to other options. Right. And so it's that's kind of stuff is overwhelming and disorienting. And I think there are so many people who are in that position. They're not staying because they're comfortable. 
they're stuck because they don't know how to navigate the mm-hmm. alternatives that they see. Mm-hmm. Which is which is that to put different language to it, that kind of like exvangelical thing is because they've been trained by the evangelical church to be uh, exclusive, right? To yeah. kind of like it's it's that group and then us. Yeah. That once they leave, it's still the same thing. That's that group and this is us. That's that way of thinking. This is our way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And yet they're playing by that same framework. Hey, Chris. This has been really helpful. I'm actually super excited because clearly we're doing this again and <laughs> we'll be doing it again a lot. And then, of course, of course, bringing in a lot of different guests for season three, uh, a lot of them that I'm excited about. And I'm sure we can tease some of those here in the future. But I'm, I'm pretty stoked because, you know, you and I, we 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 converse well we have fun i mean i'm now i'm just kind of just talking uh i enjoy our conversations and so i really hope that others can enjoy the way that we process how you know we come in and even outside of this we do this often where we just talk about things and my like little question of like hey can i ask you a question about this thought turns into an hour and a half more like a text message that seems really simple ends up being like a long 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 conversation so uh thanks for of course doing this now I, I feel like i shouldn't have to thank you anymore because now this yeah. is this right absolutely thanks anyways though it's just kind of being nice um and we'll, we'll be doing this soon cool man i enjoyed it thank you Aaron.